Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, June 13th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the state's largest hospital looks to telehealth services to reach more in need of care. And a new study reveals there's more to shipwrecks than sunken treasure. Plus, understanding the historic parchment ordeal virtually. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Healthcare in Mississippi is becoming more virtual, allowing more rural residents to gain much needed access to medical care. During the pandemic, emergency declarations eliminated many of the barriers to telehealth, allowing doctors to connect remotely with patients. And this year, Mississippi passed a law making that expansion permanent. The University of Mississippi Medical Center began its telemedicine program in 2003. Dr. Shah Chandra is the center's chief telehealth officer, and Tassani Davis is director of clinical programs and strategy. They share more about how telehealth is reaching patients where they are. So I think everybody knows that during the pandemic, I think there has been increased utilization of telehealth. There has been uh, an exponential rise in um, the numbers of telehealth visits that are being performed. And there are different modalities of telehealth. Uh, the most uh, talked about is the audio-video visit in which uh, a provider can connect with the patient using a mobile device or a desktop, uh, and anybody can utilize uh, you know, the, those platforms to connect to the provider. Now, in addition to the audio-video modality, there are some other uh, modalities. Uh, uh, one that is, comes to my mind is the remote patient monitoring. Uh, so in that program, we do send a tablet to the patients, and the patients connect to us using that tablet. Uh, we also send them devices for measuring their blood pressure and glucose. Uh, and those are Bluetooth-enabled devices. Once they take their readings, it connects to the tablet that they have it at home. And then via cloud, it comes to our... Uh, there's another one that uh, that we are now uh, implementing is a store and forward technology. You store 
the images and a remote physician uh, can log in and view those uh, images and make a diagnosis. But now, uh, since the pandemic, uh, its uh, utilization has expanded in many different areas. So there are many different ways that now we can uh, enable the patient to be connected to the provider. This year, the state legislature made it to where telehealth is going to be a more permanent part of Mississippi, um, eliminating some of the issues that were um, happening amongst uh, insurance providers and uh, limits that were in place between, you know, provider to patient care. Looking into the future, what do you think this could mean for Mississippians to be able to have more permanent access to telemedicine? What I think the pandemic did was that it, I think it equaled the playing field in a way um, that people who needed it the most um, gained access to it, um, if you will. So the removal of some of the barriers that were put in place by regulations were, you know, really made telehealth available. So where we are today is I believe that patients are now expecting um, to have access to telehealth. It's, it's pretty difficult to give people something and then to pull it back. <clears throat> so now, I, I, you know, what I tell providers is and what I told them during the, uh, the height of the pandemic is if they did not have a telehealth offering in their practices, that they needed to figure out a way to have some type of telehealth offering after the pandemic. Um, and I do believe that these regulations or these uh, lifted restrictions becoming more permanent, you know, have confirmed my prediction. Um, so if I had to give, you know, any advice to providers, is I would tell them to maximize on that because patients are now expecting it. And when you really think about the makeup of the state of Mississippi and how rural our state is, it's really sad when you think about how we have been practicing telemedicine in Mississippi now almost 20 years, when you really think about the, the, uh, the population that has really missed out, you know, because of the geographic restrictions and the uh, reimbursement regulations, it's pretty sad. Um, so I think that what it means is that more people are going to get what they have needed over this, this past 20 years and that more people are expecting it. Are there any current limitations that you think could be addressed in the future to improve telehealth in Mississippi? Well, one comes to mind is uh, audio only. Uh, you know, there's a big debate that is going on whether audio only should be recognized as a, and, and, and reimbursed uh, and, and that those discussions are going on at the state level and the federal level. Uh, you know, not everybody has access to audio video technology. Uh, we have a population in our state that doesn't have access to broadband uh, connectivity. So there may be in some cases that uh, audio-only telehealth visits may provide access to health care to the patients, and that is something in the future that we need to maybe revisit and look into whether uh, that should be allowed. And, and I, I will add to that, I have two things. One thing is what I call uh, reactive reimbursement. And, and for me, that means when we can be reimbursed for telehealth services after a patient has already incurred um, significant costs related to their health. 
and an example of that is remote patient monitoring, where in some cases, payers are requiring that the patient already have experienced um, hospitalizations and ER visits related to that chronic condition. You know, if we could offer them remote patient monitoring prior to the hospitalizations and ER visits, then we could prevent, you know, that expense. Also, the expenses that they incur um, as it relates to co-pays and deductibles, you know, as it relates to remote patient monitoring services. We have patients out there that could benefit from that service, but they are having to say no to the service because of the lofty upfront cost, you know, of being on the program. So that, that's something that, um, that I think is a, is a big barrier. Um, but another thing that could be a potential barrier or is a barrier is an in-person requirement um, for some services, such as mental health visits. You know, it, we all know that there is a mental health crisis. We also know that there is a limit uh, to how many mental health providers we have, you know, to spread across the state. And in many cases, you know, we have deserts um, as it relates to mental health providers. And what we both are saying is that, you know, a lot has been done during the pandemic and a lot needs to be done going forward as well because, you know, we have a lot of vulnerable, we have minorities, old people living in rural uh, areas that have poor access to health care. And a lot has been done and we need to continue working together to make sure that uh, we can provide access to health care for the population of our state. Coming up, a new study reveals there's more to shipwrecks than sunken treasure. Imagine that. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Layla Hamden spends a lot of her time studying shipwrecks. The University of Southern Mississippi scientist is interested in the new life the vessels are bringing to the deepest parts of the Gulf of Mexico. She talks with our Michael Guidry about her work and says that it's one step in understanding how human structures and activities change life in the world's oceans. Scientists have known for decades that shipwrecks attract life to them, and um, they form oases on on the seabed for marine life. And this is really important in deeper parts of the ocean, where um, if you have a um, a remotely operated vehicle and you look at the seabed, to the naked eye, it looks like there's nothing there. It's just the sea of mud. Um, but occasionally, that sea of mud is interrupted by something like a shipwreck. And if you look at these shipwrecks, you can see the um, the life that is growing on them, the fish, the crabs, you know, bivalves, worms. But that life and that, that great accumulation of things that you can see can't happen until microbes, um, like the ones that my group is studying, get there first. And these microbes form biofilms. They make the surface of this uh, shipwreck or any shipwreck 
or really anything that we put into the ocean um, very uh, sticky with their cells as well as the sugars that they produce. And um, these things make a really good home for the microbes, the things that you can't see. Uh, but also that stickiness allows all of those larger organisms that we can see, it allows them to attach to the surface and then um, help something like a shipwreck graduate uh, from a chunk of wood or a chunk of metal into what we call artificial reefs on the seabed. And so we wanted to go to these shipwrecks and and really start to learn um, how does its presence on the seafloor um, shape the environment around it in the ways that we don't know already. What is the importance of that kind of that bridge, that first step, the role that, Mike, you said biofilms and microbes play? Can you kind of elaborate on that and how it acts as a bridge to the development of fungi and other bacteria and eventually uh, the bivalves, the crabs, the fish that, that you brought up? Where the the shipwrecks that we're studying are located, they're in, in some of the deeper parts uh, parts of the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and so the seafloor in the deep sea, it tends to be a pretty um, lean place to live uh, for, for all organisms. And then suddenly some human debris arrives there. And that debris is really nutritious, especially to microbes. Um, microbes have evolved uh, with all of Earth's history um, we, in, in my field, we look at microbes as, um, as the all-taskers. Um, there is a microbe that is able to consume every single chemical compound, um, substrate, um, what have you, that exists on Earth. And so wood arrives on the seafloor, and microbes that are present you know, view this as, as a feast. And so they are the first ones to, to flock to it and start colonizing it and putting down these really sticky films of biofilms. Um, and, and in doing that, they themselves then become kind of a food source because they're transforming that wood into energy for themselves. And then because microbes are made of fat and protein and carbohydrates, they become food for other organisms too. And over time, um, that becomes, it becomes a little island of, um, of energy and nutrients and life on the seafloor that wouldn't be there unless that human debris had found its way to the seafloor in the first place. But the other side of this is that we keep adding material to the ocean. Um, shipwrecks are just, you know, one example of some of the human debris that we put out there. So our group is wondering, you know, when does that feast, when does that, that, that advantage, you know, that we are potentially giving to biodiversity on the seafloor, when does that turn to a disadvantage? Um, and that's why we're focusing on microbes in this study, because they are um, fast growing. They are everywhere. They are, you know, wonderfully metabolically diverse. And this sets them up to be these um, sensors of change on the seafloor. Is there a way to quantify the impacts of these multiple shipwrecks and how that proceeds closer to the surface? Is, is there an interconnectivity there to see how what changing on the seabed leads to changes um, at other depths of you know, places like the Gulf of Mexico? The microbes on the seafloor, even though we can't see them, even though most of us will never have any connection to them because they're physically removed from, you know, from up, uh, us up here on the surface and on the coast, they impact all life on Earth. 
um, every um, everything that we do um, as human beings um, and and all all life on Earth, it eventually ends up in the ocean. And at some point, um, every you know compound that every chemical compound, every um, nutrient that we have, um, it cycles through these microbes on the seabed. And they are the organisms that are able to, you know, to take nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus, which are essential to all life um, in the ocean, and recycle it, bring it back up into the water column, make it available to um, a commercially important fish species. And eventually that makes its way back to us um, as human beings in the form of, a, of our economies and the food that's on our plate. And if these microbes on the seafloor um, are not able to do the work that they do to keep um, to keep the uh, the food web and the food cycle of, of the ocean going, we should all be concerned, um, uh, you know, as uh, as inha- inhabitants of our planet. Um, and we're not suggesting with this work that something catastrophic is happening on the seabed. What we're what we are doing is is raising a flag and saying. Um, we know that the debris that we're putting out in the ocean is changing these most fundamental, most important members of, of life in the ocean, these invisible microbes. And we've been doing this now for um, hundreds of years. And at some point, um, and we hope that point is now, um, that the scientific community as well as the public starts paying attention to this um, because it has the potential to impact uh, every bit of life uh, and every space in our coasts and our oceans. Layla Hamden, co-author of Frontiers in Marine Science, a new study uh, about just what we've been talking about, how human interaction with the ocean through debris and shipwrecks have profound effects on sea life. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to share a lot of this with us today. Thank you, Michael. I really enjoyed the conversation. Coming up, understanding the historic parchment ordeal virtually. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Visitors to the Proud to Take a Stand monument in Natchez can now get a more immersive experience. The monument is engraved with over 500 names. The six-feet-tall granite structure honors Natchez-Adams County citizens who were forcefully shipped to the penitentiary at Parchman in October 1965 for standing up for basic civil rights. Roscoe Barnes of Visit Natchez says a newly introduced feature allows those interested to experience the parchment ordeal virtually. We have the monument, and it attracts people from all over. The chairman for the committee who erected this monument wanted more for the visitors. He wanted, when visitors come to the monument, he wanted them to get more out of their visit. Out of their visit. He wanted to be an experience that would be not only moving and informative, but immersive and interactive. And to do that, the committee arranged to have an app 
that would allow visitors to have an immersive and interactive experience. Basically, the app, which can be accessed through a QR code, which will open up and allow you to have images and video, audio of the parchment ordeal experience. Who did the video and the audio? Uh, this was done by some of the staff members uh, of Visit Natchez who worked on the script. Uh, they worked uh, with uh, Time Looper and, and members of the committee. They worked with some of the local historians to put this together. So I would have to come to Natchez and use the QR code on the sign? Well, actually, you can. Uh, I'm going to be posting it online so that if you wanted to do it from your office or from your home, you will be able to do that. But it was created ideally for people who visited, who came to the site and wanted to have uh, a more in-depth experience of what they were seeing. Where is this statue? And kind of give us a description of what it's like, please. Yes. The monument is located here in Natchez in the downtown area. And it's not far from the bluff, from the Mississippi River. It's on the corner of Canal Street and Jefferson Street. It's near the Natchez City Auditorium. And uh, it's, like I say, it's about six feet tall, granite structure. On one side, you have a iconic, an iconic photograph of some of the people who were marching, who were protesting, who were protesting for their rights, marching for their rights. And equality. So you have, and that image covers the whole front side of the monument. And on the back side, you have the names of the people who were who participated, who were part of the parchment ordeal. Do you know how they were able to come up with all of the names? That's a yeah. lot. Well, yeah, um, they actually interviewed many. There are many survivors who are who are here today, and they use police records. Because anytime you make an arrest, you have a name. And so they were able to go through all of those records to get the names of all of those who were arrested and were part of this, uh, this historic uh, incident. Any idea how these folks are doing? Oh, many of them are doing well, and they're very happy about the monument. One interesting thing happened a while back. There was a gentleman walking by. He just stopped over to take a look at the monument, and then he stopped. He recognized himself, and he said, oh, that's me. He saw himself in the photo, <laughs> and then there are others who would come. They are moved emotionally. Some are moved to tears because they said, they say that it brings back memories. It takes them back to that time period. And then you have others who will look at it with pride because they know what they accomplished as a result of that sacrifice, of that suffering. It, it reminds me of something that King once said, unmerited suffering is redemptive. And so they look back, they think about the sacrifice and the suffering, and then they reflect on what they were able to accomplish. See, when they were marching, they were marching for equality. They were marching for civil rights. They wanted to be respected, and they did not want, they were also marching against the harassment that they received by racist 
and by the KKK. They were marching for these things, and they had issued demands to the mayor and to the board of aldermen, and most of those demands were met, and so it was a great achievement. So when people go there today and they, they, they reflect, they think about the good, the bad, and the ugly. That was Roscoe Barnes of Visit Natchez. Up next, the January 6th committee public hearing begins. NPR will have the latest and bring it to you live. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi Edition only on MPB Think Radio.